morning, beloved. I'm Jonathan Coleman, one of the pastors here at Anderson Hills. I want to say hi to everybody watching online. I know we have some folks under the weather and stuff's going around. And uh, it's so good to have you guys here uh, today. I didn't get the memo for the cowboy boots. I need to give up my Doc Martens, man, and get some Stetson boots. I want to do that. That was great. So today we've reached a milestone in our journey in the story. After today's message, we will have completed the Old Testament. And so tomorrow's Bible reading plan will start in the Gospels. And so we'll get on our way there as we move through Lent. And this is the first Sunday of Lent. And so in the last few weeks, we've learned that the Jewish people were carried away into exile in the Babylon and in that empire. Not long after, Babylon was uh, taken over by the Persians under the leadership of Cyrus the Great. And he was a little more lenient, and he allowed people to go back to their homelands. And so about 100 years later, there's a second wave of refugees who return home, and it's led by a prophet named Ezra. And so he helps them refocus, and we heard this two weeks ago, refocus on building the temple. And so today we're going to look at a man named Nehemiah. And he is living in uh, Susa, same, same place as Esther, we heard about from last week, uh, lived. And he was serving as a cupbearer of King Arta Xerxes I. That's a mouthful, Arta Xerxes. He's the sixth king of the Persian Empire. And in ancient royal palaces, this cupbearer was very, very valued, trusted, it was more than a robe servant or a slave or a butler. Um, he was entrusted with the responsibility of tasting the king's wine, any type of beverage, and the food to make sure it wasn't poison because that happened a lot. Uh, somebody would slip something in there and you're done. And so it was a very self-sacrificing role that Nehemiah uh, did for his king. And so, in the first chapter, right off the bat, and if you read through Nehemiah, a lot of it is, is Nehemiah in first person. And he's telling you about what's going on in his life. And he inquires about his people in Jerusalem. And he talks to a friend named Hanani, who just returned from Judea. And so, the first thing Nehemiah asks Hanani is, Hey, how's everybody in Jerusalem? How's the city? And in this question, he just has this deep concern for his people. Well, Hanani says, things aren't good, Nehemiah. He says, those who survived the exile, they're back in the province. They're in great trouble, and they are in disgrace. And if you want proof that people deeply matter to Nehemiah, when he hears that news, immediately he sits down and he weeps right there. And it wrecks him. It really does. And you see his heart break for his people. I don't know if you've ever asked about a hometown friend or family or you hear news um, about someone you love who is back at, in home. And, and maybe you hear, Jonathan, they're not doing very well. And uh, we need to pray for them. And it breaks our hearts when we hear that kind of news. And so Nehemiah is right there. And it's his entire nation that are going through this. You know, it kind of convicts me um, that I, I really want to have that type of heart of compassion 
when people are in need and struggling, I want to hold those people in my heart. And so we see Nehemiah immediately interceding in prayer. And he felt horrible, but he knew that the only thing he could do at that time was fast and pray. And so verse 4 tells us what he did. He said, for some, reason, for, for some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before God of heaven. And so the first thing he does is get down on his knees. And that compassion begins to grow in his heart as his petitions are lift up, lifted up to God. And that really has to be our first action in a lot of circumstances and when we hear difficulties of others. I have to brag about my father-in-law, Bruce Schindler, who's he's, he's the rock in my life. I see him as a very significant spiritual influence. And he's over, right over there in the traditional uh, worship, probably having a choir robe on and singing out maybe. No, Mark's preaching right now. So anyway, but here's what he does. When somebody s says to Bruce, to Papa, will you pray for me? He's the kind of dude that'll say, get your hands over here. And he prays right there, right now, and prays for them. And I want to be that kind of person. Because, you know, you think about this. Like Nehemiah, when, when he gets this kind of request, um, he would be that type of person. You know, and you, you see things come across social media or through email or text. Hey, pray for me. And then we, you know, the little emojis, got the hands going up. And... We say, I'm praying, but I think it kind of convicts me that maybe I need to pull over the car and pray. Maybe I, I need to not just give it a nod, but put the phone down and pray. Turn the skillet off the oven and pray. And be present to that prayer. And holding those people in my heart with a heart of compassion. I don't know about you, but that would be something that I think I could do just by learning from Nehemiah here. And he saw this God-sized problem, and he needed a God-sized solution. And so he's putting up these, these ginormous prayers for a hundred days. In verse 5 it says, Then I said to the Lord, the God of heaven, the great uh, uh, awesome God who keeps the covenant of love with those who love him, and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive. Let your eyes be open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before the day and night your servants, the people of Israel. And so he's praying and he's fasting morning and night. And it's a very heartfelt, passionate prayer. What if we all did that and committed to that on this journey of Lent, 40 days? We have exactly 42 days of Lent left. And so chapter 2 takes place, like I said, 100 days after chapter 1. And so for 100 days we see Nehemiah this man petitioning for his people. And, and we don't see anything change, but God is waiting. And even though nothing is seen by Nehemiah, God is waiting. So the king senses something's wrong, and you see it right in the beginning. Again, in first person, Nehemiah, he was a cupbearer, and, and Nehemiah has this, just probably had this well-practiced uh, false mask on over his expression of grief and sorrow. For days and days. But this king sees through it. And he asks him, Nehemiah, why are you so depressed? And Nehemiah replies this. He goes, first of all, he gives him some praise. Hey, may the king live forever. Why should not my face look sad? When the city of my fathers is buried in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire. And he hears all the specifics of that. 
And the king asks him, and this is a God moment, Nehemiah, what is it that you want? This is the moment of truth. He has wept, he has fasted, he has prayed. He's done all that, the spiritual that you can do from the depths of your being going up to God the Father. And, and in that moment, everything was laid on the line. And this is God answering prayer. He says, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, let him send me to the city of Judea where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild that city. It's a big risk. It's a huge request. And he asked the king, and the king grants him that request. And then all of a sudden you see all of the supplies and resources to build up those gates and walls are given to Nehemiah. I remember when I was 20 years old, or 20, 20 years ago, which wasn't 20 years old, I was, a youth, I was a youth pastor at Gallup Police Grace United Methodist Church. I had this vision for a, a fifth and sixth grade ministry after church, and the kids could walk from school to Grace United Methodist Church. And I wanted to start this ministry because there was just a void there, man. And I, I prayed and, and was led to begin this. And we needed about $5,000 in resources. I wanted to get stand-up arcade games. I wanted to get a popcorn machine, pool table. But I also wanted to get a video projector, which were very expensive back then. And just refreshments and everything in order to kick this off. Well, folks, after prayer, I made a trip to Bob and Jewel Evans' house. Their mansion, basically. They were members of, of that church. And uh, I told Bob Evans the vision. It was a God-sized vision. And I remember him asking me, Pastor Jonathan, what do you need? How much? And I remember my throat went dry, and I was gulping, and I was like, maybe I'll just shoot low. And I said, Bob, I need $5,000. He goes, Joel, get the checkbook. And he wrote a check for five grand right there. And this God-sized request was just so profound how he met that need right there. And I felt like this was the king, you know, going before the king, maybe the biscuit and sausage king. But, I mean, Bob fulfilled that. I tell you what, we started that in September. By November, we had about 75 kids coming to this, learning about God and about Jesus Christ. And I, it was a Nehemiah moment. And I, I remember just thinking, like, well, $2,500. No. I think we need to be, have that kind of faith to ask God what we need when that vision comes. And Nehemiah was behind it all. Or God was behind it all. And he, he told that king what he needed, and he gets it. And so they begin this large trip to Jerusalem. It's a 1,000 miles. He leaves back a comfortable life, the job, the home. And after arriving, he begins to do some reconnaissance. And you read it in there. And it, again, it's in first person. He's going around, and he's looking at the walls where the, the holes are. And you can see it in your mind eye. He goes, I went to the sheep gate. I went to this gate. I went to the dung gate and this valley gate and everything. And he discovers the extent of the work that needed to be done. And in his mind, Nehemiah sees that vision of how he can rally his people around rebuilding these walls. Instead of seeing gaping holes, he sees new gates. And instead of seeing, you know, rocks crumbled in ruins, he sees walls, brick and mortar, built up protecting his city, the temple. And he felt God's presence. And he knew God was in this vision. And so, he's like 
getting his people, he had that kind of see it with me type of dude. No more disgrace. Let's rebuild right now. You see how God's vision comes? Listen to this. First, you hear or see something that breaks your heart. And you see a void there. And you know it could be filled through the work of God, through the ministry of the people. You begin fasting and pray. You go to the problem and you begin to see that God will send divine solution. And then contributors will come alongside of you. Helpers will come. And he rallied the people. Assignments were made. It's like, you guys work here. You guys work here. You work here. And you see that specifically. Raise the walls. Get the mortar churning into buckets. Start cooking bricks. We're going to do this together. And it's really cool because everybody's hands got dirty. And you could see the, the, the repair happened. And everybody's name was listed in the Bible because everybody was important. You could see that so specifically. This was a historical event and facts that took place. And within 52 days, that wall was finished. And you see from Nehemiah being on his knees weeping to what God did through that God-given vision in the breaking of his heart being lifted up. Now, was there opposition? There was. During that time, it wasn't all fine and dandy. You know, when it makes me think whenever you attempt something for God, you're going to run into opposition. And in this case, two people named Sam Ballot and Tobiah. Look at chapter 4-7 here with me. It says, what, But when Sam Ballot and Tobiah, the Arabs and the Ammonites and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs were happening to Jerusalem's walls, they, they had gone ahead and the gaps were being closed and they were very angry and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir trouble against them. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people of Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out, and there was so much rubble that we can't rebuild the wall. Can you hear the frustration? And they hit that bottom, and there was times of just, we can't do this. But there was a rally that happened around this project at its low point. And so that rally took place in people's spirits, too. There was a lot of rubble, but they pressed on. So how does Nehemiah handle this? After he prays, he builds this strategic plan. He posts small platoons to guard the workers as they rebuild. He puts together a, a warning system against the enemies in case they're attacked. And then he gives this brave heart speech in verse 14. You can see it. Don't be afraid. Remember the Lord. Who's great and that's a horrible Scottish, but he's saying, who's great and awesome, fight for your families, fight for your sons and daughters, your wives and your homes. And he rallies them around that call. You know, maybe God has given you a vision of what God wants you to become in him and his purposes. Maybe God wants to do a rebuild. And maybe you desire to have this wholeness of mind, body, and spirit in relationships. And maybe God wants to get your temple healthy. But we have to, we have to build these walls up to keep out the opposition. 
And notice this is not something that Nehemiah does alone because he would have been there for 200 years, mortar, brick, mortar, brick. No, this is, he uses plural in this. They did not give up on their God-given vision together. They would not surrender. And it was a testimony to their com commitment. You know, I think we need to bring Christian brothers and sisters alongside of us when this God-given vision comes to us. And I want to ask you, maybe, maybe Wednesday you're at the Ash Wednesday service, or you've, you've heard and seen the imposition of ashes on, on the forehead, and maybe God gave you a vision of that to increase maybe your spiritual fervor for him and experience your own personal revival. And we need that together in community of faith here. I think everybody needs an unrivaled wingman or wingwoman in their lives. And so the work to restore the walls of Jerusalem didn't, didn't start when people began to lay bricks. It began with a burden that was placed upon a man's heart. And like Nehemiah, we must have a genuine, genuine concern for the condition of the spiritual walls in our lives. And we also have to ask for help to keep those walls protected and solid. So the next thing you see in chapter 5, in this swing chapter, that some of the reform that takes place, it really is about justice. And you're he sees that his people are impoverished and in enslaved to some of these things that are inappropriate as far as finances and taxes. He says, uh, we are mortgaging, or people come to Nehemiah and says, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our homes to get the grain during the famine. Still others are saying, we have to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. And this ticks off Nehemiah. He has some righteous indignation. Look at verse 6. He says, when I heard their outcry about these charges, I was angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you're charging your own people interest. And I continue, what, what you're doing is not right. Should you walk in the fear of God and avoid reproach of our Gentile enemies? Stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest that you are charging them. And they were convicted. They heard this plea from this prophet. He said, we'll give it back. And we won't demand anything more from them. We will do as they say. And so he knew that the economy couldn't thrive with these heavy imposed taxes. And so their generosity, they were convic convicted of, of not being generous. You know, I think, I think a part of the spiritual reform that needs to happen in our lives it has a lot to do first of all with our wallet and checkbook and pocketbook and bank account you know it's we're, we're we have people in around us and in our world that that have a lot of need they they lack the necessary uh, necessities for survival and it's about a hundred million around the world. The average number of people who die from starvation every day is 10,000 and how can we live with these statistics? And even in our own hometown. And surely those of us who live in affluent circumstances must live and act differently because 
Not because we think that we can solve all the um, macroeconomic problems of the world, but because God calls us to this type of maybe simplicity, justice, contentment, and generosity. And I think it's a part of, of maybe a focus in our Lenten journey together, is how we give our resources to help those less fortunate. You know, I, I see amazing things happening here at Anderson Hills and churches in the area, partnering uh, to not only pray, but to be advocates of, to help heal brokenness. And, and it's a part of spiritual revival that takes place in Christian communities. Churches can come together and eliminate medical debt and, and feed and clothe the needy. Like, for example, underneath the Third Street Bridge downtown. And I see that. Together, Christians coming together. And we can do more together. One of the signs of genuine Holy Spirit revival is seeing Christian unity together on these things, these type of things. Seeing signs and wonders and wholeness and generosity and compassion for those who don't have. Well, not only did Nehemiah rebuild the walls and reform the nation, he helped rebuild the spiritual and moral life of that community. And he begins with Scripture. Chapter 80 begins this way. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one. And so here's what they do. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, the Torah, which the Lord had commanded for all Israel. Picture this. Ezra opens up the Torah and everyone spontaneously stood up in reverence when he opened that book. And then Ezra gets inspired and he breaks out in praise of the Lord. And the crowd starts shouting, Amen. And they fall to the ground and they worship the Lord. And revival begins to break out around the reading of the word. And all morning long, from daybreak to noon, Ezra reads and he reads and he reads. And what's really cool is, is the younger ones who grew up in Babylon no longer understood Hebrew. And so they had translators stand alongside these young people telling them what the word was being read from Ezra. And by the end of the morning, the people are cut to their heart. And they're in tears and they're hearing God's word. And they realize how, how far short they have fallen from God's original vision for their lives together as the people of God. And here's what happens. I'm going to give you a little military slang. Um, they had a hoo-ha, hoo-ha moment. And this, you ever heard that? Like a sergeant gives out a command, he goes, hoo And then everybody says, hoo So what this means is, is they, they heard it, they understand it, they acknowledge it. And these hoo moments come to us, especially when the reading of God's word happens, is that we hear it, we understand it, and then we acknowledge it back that we're going to amen it and be obedient to it. And that's what I see happens here. You see, we just can't come to church and let these words from worship and from the reading of Scripture and, yeah, from your pastor um, hang in the air and leave them here and walk out those doors. I know so many preacher friends are like, are they really going to do what I preach, <laughs> you know? And we have to take this practical application and hoo-ah it. 
and obey it and allow the word to work in our lives. And this happened. A good descriptor is Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates in dividing the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. You ever heard scripture and you feel like it's make, making a clean surgical cut into your heart? You ever had that happen? I know I have. And this happens when God, God's people hear Ezra in the reading of his word. It's so bad that Ezra has to step back and intervene. And in verse 10, he says, do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And he, it's almost like they go, oh, finally. And all the people, it says, went away and ate and drank. So was, they were like good Methodists. They went and ate, had a spaghetti dinner after worship. But they... They felt that word impress upon their lives. And they found, after that conviction, repentance, they found just a sense of joyful obedience to it. The heart of every revival movement is obedience to the word of God. James writes in 1, 22 and 23, says, Don't merely listen to the word don't, so that you don't deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And what James is saying to us, that if our faith is to be real and genuine, it will make a difference in on how we live and how others that we encounter see God living in us. You see, the word is alive. It is something that just doesn't hang out in words of the air, but we hear it and we acknowledge it and we begin to live it and people see it. So... What does a vision for revival look like? I was standing right here a couple weeks ago, and because you know, we, we hear the word revival a lot here at Anderson Hills, and you, you get a sense that God is moving and stirring the hearts and leading people here and then utilizing us out into the community to bring revival or new life. And so a couple weeks ago, I was, I was talking to our staff about a revival that I had, I had heard about in Asbury College in 1970. I want to share a little bit about it with you. And so these are, these are freshmen, sophomores, uh, other people in college and professors. It was Friday, or Tuesday, February 3rd, 1970 at 10 a.m. Thousands of students were present for this chapel service. And in attendance, there was just this great expectation that something was going to happen. And they even mentioned to one another that they could see and sense God's presence as, the, as these young people and the professors were praying together in a spirit of unity. It said that Asbury's academic dean, Custer Reynolds, was scheduled to speak that morning, but he didn't feel led to do a, a sermon. He just simply came up with that microphone and he said, I think we just need to hear testimonies about what God is doing in some of your young, in your lives, young people. So come up as you're led. And so several students came walking up with these inspired testimonies. The first student, unnamed, he said, he said this, I'm not believing that I'm standing here telling you what God has done for me. I've wasted my time in college up, to now, up till now, but Christ has met me and I'm different. He said, last night the Holy Spirit flooded in and filled my life. Now for the first time ever, I'm excited about being a Christian. And he said, I wouldn't want to go back to the emptiness of yesterday for anything. And so the students and faculty began to share these kinds of things. 
And God's word was proclaimed. Does that sound familiar? Doesn't it sound familiar? Eyewitnesses stated this. The power of God was so present, so real, that the time itself seemed to collapse and stand still. It was as if, almost as if reality, we were in a suspended state of reality, and people could sit hour upon hour, and it seemed like only minutes or seconds. One person said a presence of God was so thick and heavy. Another person said there was kind of an aura, a glow about the chapel. And then another person said, my heart was so warmed. It sounds like Wesley. And I've had that feeling more and more and more. He said there was a sense of divine presence that one doesn't have often in this life. And when you do have it, you never quite get over it. And the last person said, just coming onto the campus, I just saw that they were overcome with conviction and then repentance and then joy and power in their lives. People were healed. Lives were rebuilt. And it went from a one-hour chapel to 185 hours, and it spread through the nation. And I really believe that this is what our world needs. This is what the church needs. It needs a revival. It does. And I, I really believe it begins when we align our will with God's will. And we begin to find that we're filled with his love. We can't help loving him and loving others. And we begin to take care of the needs of those who are less fortunate. We begin to care about the impact of scripture upon our personal lives. We begin to care about worship. We begin to fast and pray and care for one another. And so my prayer today is as we look at Nehemiah and we come to this table that we would care about revival in our lives too, that God does, to make those things a priority. And I'm praying for this in my life. And I'm praying for this for the church, people of all ages. How about you? Hua? 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 So today, we come together as a community of faith for Holy Communion. And at this table, we just experience God meeting us and becoming present to us in our lives. What's really cool is, is that there's some third graders here today, and they just went through communion discovery, and they learned all about it. They learned about the Seder meal. They learned about the words that Christ said to his disciples at the Last Supper, and before we come forward, I, I want the ushers to let these third graders come forward and just, when they come forward, just love on them and congratulate them because they're coming up with their parents and, and partaking of this holy meal. And I know you kids heard these words. You're going to hear them again, and we remember all the great things that God has done for us in this meal. And so we remember on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was gathered with his disciples and he said to them, after he broke the bread, he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. As often as you eat it, do this in remembrance of me. And we remember when he took the cup and he gave thanks to his father and he took the cup and he said, take and drink all of this, for this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for many 
for the forgiveness of sins. He said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, do this in remembrance of me. Will you join me in prayer? Dear Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit upon these gifts of bread and juice and make them be for us the body and blood of Christ so that we would be for the world the body of Christ in revival together, doing your will, and reaching out in your name. So we ask that you make us one with you and one with each other and one in that ministry. And Lord, we thank you for this time where we can come and experience your love, your forgiveness, and see a glimpse of your kingdom. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who taught us to pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we would us who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.